Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our seventh episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great, continues as we look back at how far we've come. Twista is now entering its fifth year of telling the stories of founders, startups, investors, and the growing network of stakeholders in Australia's startup ecosystem. In this show, we'll take a look back at how it all began with our first founder interview. Tim Fung had a big vision for Airtasker. Did it all go according to plan? In this show, we'll hear from Tim originally back in 2014. Then we'll hear from Tim today and discover what he learned as he built Airtasker into a huge business. Looking back at a long, strange trip and the entrepreneur's wild ride into a mature startup on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash Twista. Twista is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support our startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. Twista is also sponsored by Creative3. The future is creative. Seize it at Creative3 on the 14th of September in Brisbane. Learn more at creative3.co. It's my great pleasure to welcome Tim Fung as the first startup entrepreneur guest on This Week in Startups Australia. He's the CEO and founder of Airtasker. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell me what Airtasker does. Airtasker um, is an online and mobile marketplace. Uh, we connect people and businesses um, together with local community members who want to earn money by completing tasks. So um, through Airtasker, um, you can outsource things like cleaning, gardening, handyman jobs uh, for, for consumers, uh, but also businesses are using Airtasker for a lot of things like market research, um, mystery shopping, um, or even um, business services around the office. When you started, you really thought this was going to be a consumer-to-consumer sort of business, right? And when did you start to discover that there was actually a business-to-consumer aspect of Airtasker? Well, when we when we started Airtasker, we built it as a uh, pure platform play. So we really built it as an open marketplace. And mm-hmm. obviously, the first guys that were, were on the platform creating content sort of set the tone. Um, for what was to come, and and they were really consumers. Um, But what we saw um, start to happen over time is that businesses would, um, they're pretty rational and they're pretty smart. So when they see a platform, they're the ones who really sort of think outside the box about how they can use it uh, to benefit their business. Is there a, have you seen a sort of penny drop moment around this where a business just gets it and then starts to really incorporate Airtasker? Definitely. I mean, it's a, it's, Overall, it's a slow educational process, um, but we're seeing the bulk of our usage come from repeat users every month. So that really means that people are sort of understanding the concept, they buy in, and then they're using it consistently. So once they get it, it really becomes just a normal part of their their life. Absolutely. I mean, we've got businesses on there that um, are almost exclusively using Airtasker for all their labor needs. Um, so we've what got kinds a couple, of businesses are doing that? Um, so we have a letterbox distribution company, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, rather than you know going to Gumtree or Craigslist to recruit um, new users, mm-hmm. they're, they're just posting the jobs on, on Airtasker. And we have things um, like uh, insurance um, and the reviews and references and things like that. So that just keeps them coming back and they just find it an easier platform to manage 
manage, you know, a fleet of 30 or 40 workers uh, rather than... Let's step back to reviews, insurance. What do you mean? These are services that you're offering the folks who are purchasing the labor of someone else? Yeah. So what we um, created was, um, and we believe it's a, a global first, um, is a task insurance so uh, what it means is that every user who completes jobs on our platform mm-hmm. is covered for up to $20 million um, if they damage something or if they injure someone um, while, they're, while they're completing tasks on Airtasker. Um, and we, that's all um, included in you know, the, the fees, that, that the commissions that Airtasker makes. Right. Um, so it's not an additional cost, but it's definitely a value add um, that you get from using the Airtasker platform. So that means that... I, as someone who's contracting labor on Airtasker, don't have liability around the person that I've contracted with because Airtasker has taken that liability on. Uh, that's right. Well, our insurance policy has taken um, has taken that on. So what it um, what it protects is it, pre- it covers the worker right. for any damage which they cause right. to a third party or any um, injuries or anything like that that they cause so to a third party. if they get by a bus or something like that, yeah. God forbid. That's right. So that's so you're saying that. You, you folks are the first. Are you, are you folks sort of the only one in this space who's been offering something like that? Well, I think in terms of um, uh, there's certainly other players. You know, in the U.S., there, there's TaskRabbit and um, to a certain degree, there's Odesk and Elance mm-hmm. and Freelancer.com who mm-hmm. all offer um, platforms for outsourcing services. Um, but we were certainly the first guys to create an insurance product uh, which covered the broad scope of task labor. Um, and what we think about that is it's super exciting that insurance companies are getting it. They're getting it. That- how was that? How did you get them to see the value of this? How did you get them to write you a policy? How long did you have to work with them for that? Uh, it was about six months um, of continuous work and a, a little bit of a shout out, I suppose, to um, Jeff Stuckey uh, from Modern Risk Solutions. So he was actually pitching it to us all the way through that he, he's done insurance policies for all the big corporates and things like that, but he's passionate about collaborative consumption and mm-hmm. he thinks it's a massive, massive opportunity. I mean, he saw Airbnb, yeah. um, the policy that they created. Well, and the policy they created because they had a crash and burn scenario. That's the thing is it's a policy that's created during a crisis and you've managed to create the policy and provide the insurance ahead of a crisis. Right? Well, that's right. And I, I think that that's how an industry evolves, right? Yeah. Like um, you learn from the mistakes of the, the early guys. And <laughs> the smoking craters, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And I think going forward, there are going to be you know mistakes that we make mm. that new players are going to come in and they're going to go, we're not going to make those same mistakes you did. I'm sure they'll make their own mistakes though. What what mistakes have you made? Do you reckon? Oh, I mean, we've made we've made mistakes. Uh, I would say everything that we haven't done well, um, it could be considered to be a mistake. Um, look, we haven't had any major incidents on the platform, which has mm. been fantastic. Mm. I think the the biggest incident which we've had is um, someone drilled through a wall um, when they were mounting a television and didn't realize that there was a water pipe behind it. Oh dear! And yep. so uh, put a little bit of a hole in the in a water pipe. Um, but that's something that, you know, um, whether you hire people through the yellow pages or through any other kind of medium, even just through Google, um, these things happen. Um, but using a platform like Airtasker helps you mitigate some of those risks. When you're dealing with people, there's always going to be things that right. don't happen according to plan. Um, but we think that these platforms can help make that, improve that experience. Now, if to turn things around here, if I'm making money through Airtasker. All right. So I go out and I select the jobs that I want. Uh, Now, is it the person who's providing the job who's paying for Airtasker? It's not me as the person who's who's providing the labor, correct? No, it's actually, it is that way. So we follow a um, a similar model to eBay, uh, which is that, um, and it ends up being the same mathematical equation, um, but the way it works is that we facilitate a a P2P payment Uh uh, for the task labor, Mm -hmm. and we charge a small fee to the guys who are doing the jobs, the Airtaskers, um, for that. And the reason why we've done that is just to simplify that process between you and the person that you're working for, Mm -hmm. that process, um, given that we sort of consider the person who's hiring the labor as the the customer per se, we want to make that transaction as simple as possible. And we don't want to say plus three and a half percent X fee and and two percent. Because unless you have that labor demand, there isn't going to be any labor for the air taskers. Exactly. And they know that. They know that the more se- uh, the workers know that the more seamless we make it to higher labor, right. the more jobs for them. Um, and, and, and they also know then that they're buying this insurance policy as part of that and the whole thing. So what's the what's what's the cut that you take out of this? Uh, so we take we charge 15 percent. 
Um, and that's, um, you know, there's a lot included in that, I suppose. There's a lot of administration, there's customer service and dispute resolution, mm. and there's um, there's insurance. Is GST charged in these transactions? Uh, yes. So um, when you're paying your Airtasker fees, yes, there's GST, but that's all included in right. our fee. So right. we just tell you the, the all-in price. Mm-hmm. Um, but one way of thinking about it, I suppose, is how much does it cost you to acquire a customer on Google? You know, you start a little plumbing company, you put your ads on Google, it's 3 or $4 a click. Yeah. Um, a lot of management goes into that. And of the clicks that you get, maybe one in 10 will turn into a job. Um, so when you sort of do that math, it's sort of 30 or $40 to get a job. Whereas with Airtasker, on average, it's probably $15 to get a job. Um, but you're guaranteed that job. Right. So we never charge you anything and you've got nothing to lose unless you're earning money. So are you seeing, for example, plumbers who are using Airtasker as their primary means of getting jobs? Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly handymen, um, guys who are sort of hire a hubby um, type models, um, they definitely um, are using Airtasker and many of them are using it full time. Um, so the, one of the best quotes I heard uh, the other day is we, we had a bit of a drink um, at the um, at the Airtasker headquarters and mm. we invited um, some of our top users there. And a lot of the guys were just saying, yeah, I just quit my job to do Airtasker. And we were like, that's that was amazing for us to see these people who aren't just sort of using Airtasker as an incremental right. extra money earner, but um, a career. They're all effectively. in. They're all in. Um, and as they build those um, those reviews and that feedback up, that reputation becomes super, super powerful. Are you thinking of building anything that would help them lean into this, so that would give them some branding inside of Airtasker beyond the reputation on it? Will they be able to, in this, almost in the eBay sense, set up a bit of a store inside of Airtasker? Well, I think that's a, actually a super, super interesting question. And I, I've done a lot of thinking around this. Um, it's, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, um, that's when the idea of like a company came about right. and a company could own a brand and all these people would work for this for this brand. Right. Um, but as those people left the company, the company would retain the brand. Right. And now what we're kind of seeing through collaborative consumption is why can't Mark Pesky be a brand? Right. Why can't Tim Fung be a brand? Right. Um, so therefore, we don't necessarily, we, we may let them have nicknames or create a logo or something like that. But, but really what we want to do is empower people to own their own brand, their own reputation. Um, so you don't necessarily need to have a company or anything. You are the brand. If I were launching a startup today, I'd probably take myself down to fish burners. Every Friday afternoon, they have a pitching competition that's open to everyone. And I'd probably take my idea here and see how it flew. And if people saluted here, I'd probably feel pretty sure that I had a good idea. And not only that I had a good idea, but that I was in the right community of people who could help me take that idea where it could go. Help me grow that idea, meet the right people, build the right organization, use the right tools to make the most of my ideas. And that's really what Fishburners is all about. You can find out more at fishburners.org. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia, and we're talking to Tim Fung, founder and CEO of Airtasker. Now, how long have you been at Airtasker? It's been a, it's been quite a journey, and it uh, feels probably longer than it's been, but it's it's been over a little over two years. When you started, how many people? Uh, so we started, it was myself and, and my co-founder, Jono, um, who heads up all of our technology and operations. And, and plays a mean game of ping pong, I've heard. Yes, uh, Tankstream Labs champion, but not quite the champion of uh, the overall Sydney scene. Um, <laughs> bit disappointing. Beaten by premier sponsor Fishburner, so I just have to put that in there. So it was the two of you. Now, how did you then build the company in the sense of how did you raise the money? How much money did you need to raise as you were building the company? So uh, we started uh, very early on while we were still working full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we basically just hang out at Jono's house and uh, work on plans and wireframes and stuff like this. And we, we had been doing this for a while because we always were thinking of new ideas mm-hmm. that we wanted to, to do. But um, it, finally, the penny dropped when one of our friends who um, who works at Google um, in, in their business development team over in, in Mountain View said, 
you know, this is one of the less stupid ideas that you guys have had. And I've asked a couple of guys at work and they actually would use a service like that. Um, so that's when we sort of go, we sort of said, you know, we're definitely going to go at this now. Um, so we um, we got together a bit of our own money um, and we hired some developers. Uh, we were still working full time. Mm-hmm. So um, during our lunch break, we'd go and hang out with the developers and, and things like that. So a group called Sentia and a, a team um, with a, a guy leading, being led by a guy named Michael Chindrick. Um, and so we, we put out to get our money. We spent it all on development. Uh, we built a platform. And then we hustled to get our first users on um, because we knew that uh, lots of people had built platforms, mm. um, but not many had been able to reach traction. So we sort of thought, how can we get as much free advertising and right. free reach as we could? Um, partnered up with a bunch of guys um, who were working in universities, worked with interns to get in there. Um, and uh, we got to a couple of thousand users. Um, and we also put How long did it take to get to a couple thousand users? Um, probably about two weeks. Um, and uh, we did that because we said, hey, can you include us in your mail out mm. to all your students? And we'll give you, we, we put up a prize to do that. Uh, we didn't, so what made you decide that you wanted to focus on students first as the air taskers? We, we sort of thought, you know, the workers who would enjoy this kind of, um, this type of task related labor um, are those that have a flexible lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So it's those guys who can work sometimes during the day and just pick up jobs, but they probably don't necessarily need to have a full-time income because at the very um, at the very beginning of Airtasker, we knew the job volume wouldn't um, be able to create a full-time income right. like it does now. Right. Um, so that's what gravitated us towards students. But we quickly realized that it was a much bigger market than that. Um, so now, um, you know, we sort of see these three groups, which is the the students, mm-hmm. um, the the professionals mm-hmm. who are often working full time, or they might be in between jobs, mm-hmm. but they're the ones really providing the skills. So, like um, an accountant or someone like that, accountants, bookkeeper. uh, bookkeepers, uh, graphic designers, right. marketers, people so, like that. So, in that sense, this is where you start to intersect with something like an Odesk or a freelancer. That there's a some overlap there in that kind of skilled professional. I don't know that I would go to a freelancer for a book. Keeper, I would think of them to go for, say, a graphic designer, but there's some overlap there. Well, I think that's a great example of how um, location and proximity, how important it is. And mm. um, it's really You don't want a bookkeeper in Pakistan. Exactly. And and not just because they might, they may be able to skill up and learn the laws and stuff, but there's different cultural aspects. Um, and then there's the proximity of being able to pick up the phone and, you know, have that. Get the books. Right. You know, exactly. I have my bookkeeper over in Bronte and I can just pop over there whenever I need to because it's just a bus ride away. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really love the virtual outsourcing model because I think that it applies to a lot of segments. But I think that a lot of people overestimate the impact that it could have on um, all of the types of jobs, because even Odesk and and, um, and Elance and things report that uh their jobs, they're seeing that the the people being assigned to to tasks through their websites are actually getting closer and closer together over time. Um, so in other words, proximity actually does matter. U.S. people want to hire U.S. people. Aussies want to hire Aussies. Well, one of my friends did a startup a few years ago and outsourced everything via freelancer basically to the Ukraine and to Pakistan. And he was in California, which is basically 12 time zones away. And there was a three-month period where he essentially didn't sleep. Because they were on when he was trying to sleep and then they were sleeping when he was on. And so it really is – there's a lot of reasons why proximity is a handmaiden to creativity on a project. I agree with you. Absolutely. And I think you you usually don't get anything for free. So um, I think that's a good example. Um, You might get the labor for cheaper because it's overseas, but you'll probably end up sort of having to put in a bit more effort um, to, to manage those. So those how many, people. how many now, now, two years later, how many registered air taskers are there? Uh, so we have 160,000 workers on the platform. Is that just in Australia or is that all around the world? Uh, just in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've really focused our market. Um, you basically can't even register to the platform, mm-hmm. um, unless you have an Australian, um, address. Right. Um, so we've been really focused on, on capturing this market and it is a big market. I mean, again, the big platforms see that Australia is pretty much the second biggest market after the U S mm-hmm. um, the reason for that well, is without you costs almost have one percent of the population registered as air taskers. Oh, well, half a percent, I suppose. Yeah, twenty-three million people, right? So yeah, I mean, well, okay, yeah, yeah it's a 
two thirds of a Long percent. Way to go. <laughs> right? Two thirds. That's 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 very respectable, though, if you're talking about a labor pool that is conceivably sort of you know a third of a percent of the population. Definitely, and then our our um our ambition from here is not just to get more people using the platform, but to skill up the people. Um, that are on the platform so that they're ready to do um, jobs um, that have specific skill requirements and not just skills in the, the current sense of the word, things like accounting or mm. or, or plumbing or electrician, but um, things like IKEA furniture assembly. Yeah. It's, it's a skill or being able to put together a certain type of trampoline. Yeah. Um, that is a very specific kind of skill, which these days is not considered a skill, but we believe in the future should be. But if it were easy enough to find and locate that skill and get it to hand, then you would actually know, wait, that's a skill. Exactly. When I had my Billy bookcases assembled, I actually called someone because they did it in 15 minutes and saved me pulling my hair out for two hours. That's and right. It was exactly what I wanted. All right. Let's talk about your business now. You've got this 167,000 registered air taskers. How much revenue is that bringing in now? Um, so we, we don't speak in um, definitive revenue terms um, publicly, but I can tell you we um, we have about a million dollars um, posted through the website every month now, Okay. Um, and we take a 15% cut of that. So you can do some maths around that. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty healthy business model. It's not sort of like a Twitter where you need to be investing, investing, investing for yeah. sort of 10 years or seven years to, to get a return. Um, but uh, we're still in growth mode and we just want to get really so big. are you raising capital? Um, we likely will be. Uh, we're in a pretty good financial position right now, so mm. we don't have to. Um, but of course... Well, that's the best position to raise money in anyway. Exactly, yeah. Um, but our board and our investors are definitely like, let's go big. Um, so they're sort of not interested in, you know, let's just make a little company and be like an Australian recruitment agency right. or something. They're like, we want to see well, something huge. Ian Gardner was sitting in that seat half an hour ago saying that, you know, we're looking for the companies that go to 100 million. And this is probably what your investors and what your board wants to see for you. How do you get to 100 million? So I think um, it's very interesting. Um, first of all, I think Australia, just Australia, mm. has an opportunity to be a, a company that big. Really? Um Definitely. I mean, if you look at um, my view on it is that there was sort of like a, a generation one of Australian classified. So there was Seek, realestate.com and car sales. You know, they were the three big pillars, jobs, houses, cars. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing now is because the Internet's become more fluid, um, all of the um, incremental versions of those are now coming out. So with cars, why buy a car on car sales when I can use GoCatch right. or Uber? So that's the kind of the rent model versus yeah. the buy model. Yeah. With houses, Airbnb, why buy a house uh, when Man. I can uh, rent? And, and we're not saying yeah. that, that It doesn't that have the same fluidity, there, but, but it's close, yeah. Yeah, and same with jobs. So rather than full-time jobs, uh, temporary jobs. So uh, we think that the scope for these kind of businesses is at that kind of scale. Um, so very interesting Australian businesses, but even more excitingly, uh, international businesses. So you're too. really taking a look at revenues as being a percentage of the entire overall labor market in Australia. Absolutely. Wow. Right, will you be going international? Uh, yes. So we, we've definitely got plans um, to go international. Uh, we have a team um, sitting over in the US right now doing um, doing our research mm -hmm. um, and setting up uh, some of our back-end A lot more competition systems. over there, though, right? There is. And, and the US um, and China, which we also have um, links with, are, are really interesting markets, but they are heavily competitive. And you better be ready for a fight, mm -hmm. I suppose, when, when you head over to that. Um, pretty interesting to see companies like Rocket Internet say, we do everything except the U.S. and China because everyone else seems to be underserved, right. um, whereas China and the U.S. seem to be overserved. So uh, we're still defining our strategy a little bit. So Wow. Tim, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you for being the first startup entrepreneur on This Week in Startups Australia. I'm honoured. Thanks, Mark. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. 
With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. Our very first chat with a startup founder on our premiere episode was with an entrepreneur who hoped to reshape Australia's labor market via collaborative consumption. His vision was bold. His product considered all he needed was time and a bit of luck to grow his business. Did he succeed? Well, we're welcoming Airtasker co-founder and CEO Tim Fong back to This Week in Startups Australia to find out. Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. We talked to you in 2014. We're now in 2018. We're in our, our fifth year of doing shows. You were just starting. I think you had about 12 employees when we spoke to you. Where is Airtasker now in 2018? Just give us a little bit of a lay of the land. Sure. So um, we're now um, 160 uh, employees um, with our um, vast majority of our staff um, of 95 here in um, in Sydney and 65 um, in Manila. Uh, we've also um, just launched um, into the UK. Um, so uh, we have a small office in London, a team of five over there. Um, it, uh, international expansion came a fair bit later uh, for us than we had first thought. But And, and it was interesting because I asked you a question directly about that and you thought that the market in Australia was always going to be was going to be big enough that you wouldn't have to go overseas. Did that turn out to be true? In other words, are you going overseas because there's an opportunity or because you find you need to? Oh, absolutely. The market in Australia is still a huge long way to go. I mean, um, there's less than a million people who have actually used Airtasker in Australia out of a population of 24, uh, 24 million. million. Yeah. So I think that there's um, a huge way to go there. Um, we're, um, and we're still growing fast in Australia. Um, the reason why we decided to launch into the UK is because we um, saw that what we were building was very much a software company and not so much an operational uh, company. So when you um, you look at some of the collaborative consumption, as they used to call it back then. And, I know, and this is one of the things we call it, what do we call it, sharing economy Sharing now, economy, or? and some people call it the gig economy. Gig I don't really economy. like that uh, name, but, um, but nevertheless, um, a lot of these apps... Um, uh, that are that fall under one of those banners um, are quite operational heavy. So if you look at something like Uber, there's people on the ground, there's um, there's checking stations, there's real estate, um, all of these things. Airtasker's model is very much a um, a software. So closer to like an Airbnb. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say very similar to an Airbnb in in, in the setup and um, structure of the organization and, and the value that we deliver. It's delivered via software. Um, and so um, with very incre- uh, small incremental cost, we've launched into into the UK and, and we're starting to scale over there too. Okay, so this is how long did it take you to, I think, sort of grasp the fact that rather than having this high infrastructure cost, which maybe back four years ago you weren't quite clear on because the market was still growing, when did you have your penny drop moment about understanding that this was primarily a, that software had eaten Airtasker and that it could go where it wanted to? Well, look, I think we were always true to to what we were in the sense that we knew that we were um, we didn't want to go through um, being an agency model. Like mm-hmm. we didn't want to go and meet every single tasker on the platform and, mm-hmm. and be the deciders of who got what job. We always wanted to say, no, it's a marketplace. It's a platform. It's a way for um, communities to come together and, and, and connect um, as opposed to being an agency service where we kind of 
um, decide um, what happens and what doesn't happen. Um, so I think we did always know that. Um, nevertheless, the statement that I meant uh, that you mentioned before about Australia being a huge market, it was more about like um, how we focus on building out a market and where all our energy was going. And so we had decided uh, four years ago that we had to keep our heads down and our bums up, uh, really focusing on making Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, um, highly liquid markets. Um, and okay, so now how did that, because you were basically at the beginning stages of that when we spoke. And so can you summarize, and I know this is a huge amount of experience, but what did you learn in that process of creating liquid labor markets across Australia? Um, I think the the first thing that we learned is that most things don't work. Uh, <laughs> Which is a really important thing to learn. It is, that you've really got to um, um, be good at running a lot of experiments, mm. um, distilling down and being factual about what doesn't work, mm-hmm. shutting down what doesn't work and stop putting resources against it, mm-hmm. um, and focus in on those one or two things out of thousands of things that you try um, that, that, that actually work. Okay, so when you're doing that and when you're actually running these experiments and when you're actually shutting these experiments down, do you need to be ruthless? Are you generous? How quickly do you make that decision? Well, I think um, uh, this will sound like a side note, and I'll bring it back. Um, uh, I'll bring it back to to the question and, and make sure it's answered. I think it's actually um, if you look at VC investing versus say um, investing into a stock market versus investing into say bonds, you kind of want to have a combination of things that you believe are going to generate a small return but have a very high likelihood of of making a return. Right. And you want to so keep low risk, low, low return. risk, low return, but you want to keep them ticking along. Um, and you want to overlay that with some bigger bets. Mm. And then every now and then you want to overlay that with a massive bet, you know, which is a, a good startup. Exactly. So you want to invest into, you know, a virtual reality startup or um, someone who's trying to get rockets to the moon or, or something like that. Um, or a hyperloop it, in Sydney between here and, uh, say, Newcastle. It might just work. And if it does work, wow, you're going to make, um, you're going to make um, a lot of money out of that. And I think it's really similar with growth experiments. You want to be running a few things that you're, you're almost certain will work they're probably never going to make you into a huge company overnight. Mm. Um, So things like um, uh, Google advertising, things like um, SEO. um, Things that are steady and dependable and reliable and people understand. Yes, and and they will cumulatively build value over time. So if you're just getting 1% better every month, you know, at the end of a long period, you're actually doing okay. Um, uh, But equally, you want to be running some bigger growth experiments um, that if it works, it's going to really move the dial. And I think... um, uh, having a combination of those two things is what's uh, really, really important. Uh, but similar, again, to the to the investing analogy, if one of those ones that doesn't work doesn't work, you don't keep putting money into it. Right. You don't keep saying, oh, that hyperloop to Newcastle, you know, even if it doesn't work the first time, let, let's just keep backing it, let's keep backing it. You've got to call it. Right. Um, and I think that's how we approach growth experiments at Airtasker too. So did you... Have you learned how to be very efficient about making that call or does your heart go, oh, I wish that had worked and I'm going to let it go just a little bit longer? Because I think that's always a hard thing. Yeah, I think um, we've gone through phases. So I think at the very beginning when we would have spoken back in 2014, we hadn't raised any meaningful money. I think we'd raised a million or two million. Well, and you said you were basically in an enviable position where at that point you didn't need to raise a lot of money. Yes, exactly. And I think that... um, uh, we were super lean. Uh, we were super lean back then. Um, we subsequently uh, raised two rounds of funding, and I think when we did do that, um, we um, we had to get more aggressive in making bets. So we were making bigger bets, mm. and we were keeping them running longer. Um, now that we've discovered a little bit more about who we are and what experiments have, have proven to you know deliver results, uh, we're getting back to being much more uh, focused and lean again. One thing that I would say that is always a balance for startup founders is balancing um, things that are going to deliver in the near term Mm. versus things that are going to deliver in the long term. Um, And you need a mix of those, right? I think so, yeah. Um, So, for example, hiring great software engineers is something that costs a lot of money in the near term. Right. And you may not see the results of what you've done or at least perceive those results in the extremely near term. Um, Right. You know, for example, if you need to re-architect a database. Right. It's going to cost you, you know, notionally, it's probably going to cost you a million dollars to do that. Um, and the advantage you're going to get out of it is you're not going to blow up in three years. Um, you need to balance that against things where you're going to put out 
an investment and you're going to get a return straight away. So something like advertising is mm. something where you feel, hey, I move the dial every time I do it. Yeah. But if you just keep doing that, you don't do the other, you're going to be in a bad place, you know. Well, um, you're going to hit, I guess, a ceiling on what your capacity for growth is, right? That's it's like, right. It's like you can tap the accelerator pedal and you can go faster, but you need actually a bigger engine if you want the car to go conclusively faster. That's right. And 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 the interesting thing that Airtasker has is that we cons- consistently have two speeds mm. because, for example, in Sydney and Melbourne, where we're already highly profitable, um, those cities we want to work on efficiency, we want to work on um, on growth that's going to deliver relative percentage increases. Mm-hmm. Whereas in cities where we're just new, so say in London where we've been um, alive for 13 weeks, uh, we're very much about throwing sledgehammers um, at that market to try and get um, to try and get incremental growth. Right. And so we get excited by um, a thousand new tasks in London, um, whereas in Sydney and, and Melbourne we wouldn't we'd be more excited about getting half a percentage point in in you know, optimization. Right. I mean, law of large numbers too, right? Sydney and Melbourne are already working with large numbers. So those percentages are are really big deals. Okay. You had 165,000 air taskers two years or four years ago. How many do you have today? So there's about 2.3 million people um, in the air tasker community now. So you've grown that by about a factor of 18, it sounds like. That's right. Something like that. That's not bad for four years. Was that was that organic, or were some of these hacks that you worked on over this period of time actually focused on getting the number of air taskers to also be higher? So it's really interesting. I think that the concept of organic growth is is an interesting one to define because what I what I have realized over this time is that everything has to be done by design. Like it's very so there are no accidents. Yeah, there's nothing like um, people. Um, you know, like, well, I should say that. I shouldn't say that there's never any accidents, but I think that um, it's rare that someone just designs something up and it happens to be silky smooth and, and just go like crazy. It's usually that person's either had 10 failures before and learned from them. Um, yeah, or, in which case, that's not a first crack at a design, exactly. right? It is bringing all of those failures and all the successes, though we don't tend to celebrate those in the same way, yes. to that next product. Yeah. Yes, and, and you know, or they happen to be brilliant and they were just born with you know, this, this knowledge in their head. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, you know, I would say nothing at Airtask is organic. Um, really, we have put in effort into mm. everything that, um, that we've gotten. And um, I would still say there hasn't been any you know, sort of single bullet where we've gone, oh, wow, we got that machine going and we never had to do anything again. Um, I kind of think we still work for every task that we are that, that goes through the platform. So one of the things that has happened is Airtasker has grown against the backdrop of what we call the gig economy, and the gig economy has both positives and negatives, and, and those are visible now in ways that they weren't four years ago. But Airtasker's also been quite out in front of working to be able to make people who are working in the gig economy as, I guess, what we just say, successful in that as possible. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I, it is really interesting, this banner of the gig economy. So I, I guess uh, let's first define what that is. I think you know, there are companies like Uber mm. that are probably included in there, companies like Deliveroo and Fedora are mm-hmm. probably considered in there, um, things like Madpaws, the, the dog-sitting website, um, and Airtask are also probably included under that banner. Um, I think the reason why that banner's come about is because all of these things you kind of access with a mobile app first, and so they sort of get, you know, um, they're all perceived to be similar. Right. I think there's a really clear distinction between um, two groups within that banner, though. Um, and one group I would call an agency model. Um, the other one I would call a marketplace model. So when you're looking at the agency model, you're talking about um, platforms where they determine the price of the, the jobs that are going to get done. They determine the scope of the job. They pick who's going to do the job. You know, you don't do the picking, they do the picking. Right, um, and right. Gen- you don't pick your Uber driver. Exactly. And, and, and they've sort of um, pre-selected the supply. So they can sound and say, you're not going to be part of our network or you are going to be part of our network. And I think that needs to be heavily differentiated from, um, from a marketplace model. Um, in a marketplace model, um, the uh, members of the marketplace choose the price, choose the scope, choose who they're going to work with, right. et cetera. Um, in Which is closer to, again, Airtasker or Craigslist or these other systems. For being I mean, even Google to, to right. that extent. You know, you create a, a website, 
they index it. Right. You know, if someone wants to click on that website, sure, they can go and do that. And to a certain degree, there's a level of transparency around how decisions are made mm -hmm. um, in a marketplace model. Um, and I think when you have that model, you can be much more open about um, what your intentions are. So with Airtasker, our intention is that as many, as much earnings go into the pockets of workers on our platform, because the way we make money is we take a fixed percentage of that um, of that money. So, so only if you grow their pie, do you grow your own pie? Yes, and we're very transparent around. Right. You know, we take our um, cut of your pie, so we're always incentivized. The more um, the more money that's going through our platform, the better. Whereas. I was with the driver the other day who no longer drives for Uber because he said to me, oh, Uber started taking 40% of my earning. Yes, and I think the, the issue there is that um, I think it's actually depending on the value that Uber provides, whether they charge zero or 40 or, or, or 80, um, it, it, that's not, the quantum's not the important thing. It's the fact that they should be transparently aligning themselves to what's good for the customer, is also good for Uber, is also good for the driver. Um, and in the agency model, sometimes that's not true because if you can charge more to the consumer and pay less to the worker, you make more money. Um, because Airtask has kind of transparently defined what we're going to make out of right. the, the, the pie, uh, we can be really um, uh, aligned to wanting the best for our taskers. All right. So one of the things that you said you might be seeing in the future about making the best for the taskers is helping the taskers upskill. Have you made moves in the last four years around helping taskers upskill themselves? So we've definitely um, made moves in allowing taskers to demonstrate their skills to the to the job posters, which I think is step one. Yeah. So we created a, a badging system on Airtasker, which allows you to verify your ID, mm -hmm. get a police check, mm -hmm. get a working with children's check. Get a, um, so I'm not letting a mass murderer into the house to put the TV on the wall. <laughs> well, I don't think there's too many mass murderers um, in the Airtasker community anyway. Um, but but suddenly, you are at least filtering them out, which is, but it's, I think it's also perception around that as yes. well. Yes. Um, so the point there is that anyone can join the community, but you have really real incentives to go and do these verifications and these checks and build trust in the community because that's how you're going to make more money. Um, and so we, we've also trialed things around um, uh, Airtasker Academy, which is um, uh, teaching people about tax and teaching them about insurance mm -hmm. and all these kind of things. So that is upskilling. Upskilling, yes. And uh, we've also um, been holding um, the Airtasker Community Summit for the last three years. Um, the, the Community Summit is where we get all the taskers together for a day and you know, share stories and talk about um, how, to, how to make money um, through the platform. But I think the badging system is really where we've delivered on allowing the taskers to show that they have real skills to the, to the people who are going to uh, work with them. Okay. All right. Last two questions. The first question, and you've already hinted this, you say a million Australians have used Airtasker. That's 23 million that haven't. What do you do about getting those 23 million or some percentage of those 23 million to use Airtasker? So I guess there's two main prongs to that. Um, one uh, prong is all about awareness. Mm. So we actually launched a brand you, new advertising campaign. Okay, because um, I've seen, I mean, there's been, air, uh, uh, like from the, what, a year and a half ago, did I start seeing the first ad? Yeah, so um, we actually, our first um, ad campaign was uh, called Like a Boss. And um, that was that was hugely successful. Um, we did make some learnings about what worked and what didn't work in that campaign. And we've launched a new campaign now, um, which just launched two days ago on Sunday. Um, called To Do Tada, which is all about you have to-dos on your to-do list and you're going to tada them and get them done. Um, so awareness is, is still a big part, part of it. I mean, people like you and I, um, you know, are probably... We're in the middle of this, so yeah. We're in the middle of this. So we, we hear about it, yeah. you know, a few months after it comes out. Yeah. Um, the average Australian still doesn't know what Airtasker is. So I, I think there's still a huge amount of awareness there. Um, the second thing is just working on creating like an amazing customer experience. Mm. And one of the things about creating a marketplace is it is harder to define the customer experience because you don't control it all. And so rather than being able to tell the taskers, hey, do this, turn up at this time, wear this uniform, we have to say, well, how are we going to create incentive to get them to want to do that? Yeah. Um, and that's challenging. Okay. If you could take one message that condenses what you've learned over the last four years since we had our, our interview that you wanted to tell the entrepreneurs who are out there who were, are where you were four years ago, just getting started. What's the one bit of advice you would have for them? 
I think I would say that um, it's really important to focus on the team. There can be a lot of external distractions, I think, when you're starting a, a startup, whether it's PR, whether it's um, working on marketing, whether it's working on you know product development. Um, but I think what's really critical that a lot of people um, don't address early on, and I think we didn't address early enough on as well, is uh, focusing on things like talent acquisition, like recruitment, like mm. make sure that every person who's coming into your team is amazingly dedicated to the cause, has the skills that you need, gets onboarded and set up for success. Um, I really do think that that's something that you can never really start on too early. Tim, thank you so much for joining us once again on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. With almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies, equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist the listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Nicola Hazel, who runs the She Starts Incubator at Blue Chili. Take it away, Nicola. I'm Nicola Hazel, and I'm the creator of the She Starts Accelerator at Blue Chili. Uh, we run this as a national program for female-led tech startups, working particularly with domain experts, so women who have big ideas for solving problems in the world, and the expertise to go about doing it, but they're not necessarily technical. At Blue Chili, we provide that technical expertise, along with the accelerator program, the mentorship, the investment, and the ability to take an idea, launch a product, and grow that company's traction so that it can raise further investment down the track. The She Starts program was launched here in Australia in 2016. We're now just coming to the end of our second cohort. It's a six-month accelerator that's really hands-on. So our founders that come into this program really spend a lot of time with us developing up their businesses and getting ready for their graduation, which is coming up here in Sydney next month. We'll then be opening applications later in the year for the next cohort for She Starts 3. We work with ambitious women with big ideas to solve global challenges. Women who have seen a problem that they are obsessed with fixing and that they want to leverage technology to do so. And whether or not they can code, we can help them make that a reality. Our program is really, though, about changing the face of startups and redefining what it means to be a tech entrepreneur. We want to challenge the status quo that means women have been missing out on this part of our economy for so long. We know that in Australia, around one in four startup founders are women. And when it comes to those who go on to raise capital, that number drops to as low as below 5%. So for us, it's really important that we are investing in women who are coming into this ecosystem, changing the ratio and seeing more of these companies continue to grow. Our program is an opportunity for people with their big ideas to turn them into globally scalable, high-impact tech companies. The women who come into She Starts not only go throughout the program with us, but they also go with us to the United States, where we introduce them to investors, to corporate leaders, to the big minds of the big tech companies of the world, and to the entrepreneurs who have blazed the trail before them. We want to show them what it looks like to have a globally scalable company, but also connect them to the ecosystems who can support them on that journey. And for us, it's really about creating that idea of what it looks like to build a company that has an impact all around the world. Founders from our very first program that we launched back in 2016 are already taking their companies global. 
The Nabalytics co-founders, Jess and Lucinda, are working with clients on their social analytics platform that helps city makers understand the people who live within their cities not only here in Australia, but in the United States, in Canada, and in fact, they've just been in Singapore and London exploring new opportunities in those regions as well. We have founders who have companies in FinTech, in AgTech, EdTech, HealthTech, Smart Cities Technologies, people who are looking at problems that sit across every vertical. And because our focus is on how do you attack problems in those verticals by understanding the problem, the customer and the market, we've got experts in those fields. So women really who are subject matter experts in their field to create those companies to solve problems for those customers. We're really proud to have seen our startups go on to raise further investment rounds, to lock in international customers, to grow their teams and create employment opportunities for their own diverse teams as they look to grow their businesses. And what we're seeing is they're really getting huge traction in the market because these are great businesses led by great founders. And that's what it all comes down to. We look for people who want to create great companies and want to start that journey with us and so that we can go on that journey with them and see those companies continue to thrive. Applications for She Starts program will be announced later this year and people can log on to the She Starts website, shestarts.com, in order to access information and get all of those latest updates as they come out. And we look forward to seeing more ideas from the women of Australia as they continue to come forward with their big ideas for changing and challenging global problems and building companies that are going to make the world look really different. Creative 3 is back for 2018, and once again, I'll be your MC. This year, Creative 3 looks a little bit different. September the 14th will be the Night of Nights for Creatives, a three-course dinner celebrating the trailblazers, disruptors, thought leaders, and futurists. Creative 3 is designed for and by creative enterprise professionals to address some of the key challenges facing the industry, offering the rare opportunity to contribute to these important issues with some of the best creative minds on the planet. The future is creative. Seize it. Save your spot at the table at creative3.co. One of the things that becomes clear when you're in conversation with Jim Fung is how considered he has become. One of the biggest differences between the interview in 2014 and the interview this year is that he's developed a depth of understanding that the experience of building Airtasker has changed him and given him the ability to both reflect upon and improve his capacity to make decisions that have a positive impact on his business. Those are the kinds of decisions that you can only make after you've had the experience of building a startup. And we can hope that in the years to come, other companies will be following in Tim's footsteps and learning from the path that he's made. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Creative3. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Tim Fung and Nicola Hazel for joining us on this episode. We've rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back again next week with our first news special of 2018. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 